Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're in a series right now called The Unstuck Life. And we've been saying that some people are stuck because they've never heard or only believe part of the gospel message. Others never learn to connect to God's power in their lives. And some people figure out the receiving part, but not the sharing. We're convinced that the path to the unstuck life is believe, connect, share. And we hope that God leads you along that path as we look at the Bible together. Now, back in 1995, I was one of many counselors when Billy Graham came to town for a five-night evangelistic event at the Rogers Center. He drew a total attendance of over 250,000 people, and each night's message was translated into 16 languages. Hundreds of us were trained to respond to the many who came forward each night. As he finished preaching, we led people in a prayer to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It was exciting to see so many people respond. But I don't know what happened to those people after they went home. I have met people who have come to faith through Billy Graham. And there's no question that he was used of God to proclaim the gospel unlike anyone else. Through his broadcasts, it's estimated that over 2 billion people heard him preach. More than 200 million people attended one of his live events. And 2 million people responded to the invitations to trust in Jesus. But follow-up studies have shown that only 6% of those who came forward show any difference in their beliefs or behavior a year later. I think we should all be concerned about that figure. Because Billy Graham represents one of the most popular evangelistic models of the last century, and he did it more effectively than anyone else. If he was only 6% effective, what hope do we have if we operate on the assumptions that he did? To put it differently, if you've prayed to receive Jesus the way that the people that I served in the Rogers Center did back in 1995, then there's a 94% chance that your faith could fizzle out. Why would that be? I don't claim to have all the answers, but there's a glaring difference between what happened at the Rogers Center and what happened on the day of Pentecost. And if we don't come to terms with it, I fear that there'll be more and more casualties in our midst. Consider my Billy Graham story, as well as your own experience in coming to faith, and compare it with what happened after Peter preached his sermon. To do that, I'd ask you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2, and I'll read from verses 40 to 47. If you don't have a Bible, click on the link for today's passage in the description below. I'll start reading at Acts 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day 
those who are being saved. This is the word of God. Now, I think the difference I see between what happened at Pentecost and what happened in the Rogers Center can be described in the one word, fellowship. But I want to define that word with three principles that I think that we often lose sight of. The first is this, devotion to Jesus involves devotion to his family. Jesus and me is a recipe for spiritual disaster. Praying to receive Jesus and then going home to work it out on your own almost always ends badly. Devotion to Jesus involves devotion to his family. Now, Pentecost was a huge festival in Jerusalem involving Jews from across the Roman world. As Peter preached, the people's hearts burned. His message came with power and conviction. And many of you have felt that. Sometimes it can almost feel as if God is speaking directly to you. But instead of just praying a silent prayer, the people responded to the gospel message in baptism. Through repentance, they were saying they were turning in a new direction. But through baptism, they expressed their commitment to new relationships. They joined in with Jesus' followers, and they did so with devotion. Verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, sometimes people treat these as individual acts, but they weren't sitting at home listening to Peter's new podcast. They were gathered together in community. They gathered to hear the apostles' teaching. They gathered for fellowship. They gathered to break bread, and they gathered for prayer. Today, we'd prefer to do those things on our own if we can. We'll take in some teaching online. We'll pray on our own. We'll catch the Lord's Supper when we're able. And we decide fellowship is probably optional anyway. And people walk away from the faith, initially inspired, but ultimately unchanged. But that's because we're cutting up the biblical formula. Devotion to Jesus involves devotion to his family. Are you devoted to fellowship the way these believers were? Verse 43 describes the awe that they felt. There was this incredible sense of God's presence in their midst, and the apostles performed all kinds of miracles. Verse 46 adds, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Can you feel the joy in this movement? It's almost as if they had become so gripped by the gospel message that life seemed to stand still for them. They're gathering daily in the temple for large-scale meetings, and then they're returning to each other's homes for meals and fellowship. Repentance led to relationships. And not surprisingly, relationships led to growth. People saw their community and how they treated one another, and it validated their message. Verse 47 says that they had favor with all the people. And then it just says, and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Now, when I was in university, a band called Depeche Mode came out with the single Personal Jesus. I didn't know anything about Jesus or the Bible at that point, but I loved the song. Its lyrics go like this, reach out, touch faith, your own personal Jesus. Someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares, someone who's there. 
things on your chest you need to confess, I will deliver. You know I'm a forgiver. Your own personal Jesus. Johnny Cash loved the song and decided to cover it. He later called it probably the most evangelical gospel song I ever recorded. Personally, I think it's a picture of what's so wrong with our North American view of Christianity. We want our own personal Jesus. To hear our prayers, we, we want that. We want him to hear our prayers, but we're not interested in praying with God's people. We want our own personal Jesus to listen to our cares, but we won't make time for the kind of fellowship where we can share our cares and hear those of others. We want our own personal Jesus to be there, but we're not there with God's people where God has purposed to reveal himself. Our own personal Jesus is mostly about us and little about him. And I wonder whether that's the Jesus you believe in. Ask yourself this, how much of your faith is vertical and how much is horizontal? How does your devotion to Jesus compare with your devotion to his people? Your own personal Jesus is only concerned with your prayers and your cares. But the real Jesus is different than that. The real Jesus cares about your fellowship. He cares that you're gathered with God's people for worship. He cares that you're praying with your brothers and sisters in Christ. He cares that you share your life with them and I'll allow them to share theirs with you. Devotion to Jesus involves devotion to his family. I think people miss this at most Billy Graham events. And I think that we miss that message today. So we've said that devotion to Jesus involves devotion to his family. Next, I want you to see that sharing in Jesus' life involves sharing your life with his followers. If your vertical relationship with God is real, you'll invest yourself horizontally with his family. You'll share your time, your heart, and all that you have. Sharing in Jesus' life involves sharing your life with his followers. Now, verse 44 says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Notice, first of all, that Jesus' followers are sharing their time with each other. Nobody seems to be watching the clock. There's a radical commitment to be with one another. And they're sharing with one another. At lunchtime, you don't have someone over here with a huge lasagna and the guy next to him chewing on a stale crust of bread. They saw themselves as family, and so they shared with each other as family. In fact, that commitment gets fleshed out in verse 45. There it says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is a statement of profound generosity. It's not that everyone had to give up personal possessions. There's no sense of obligation. This isn't a rule. And it isn't a one-time sell-off either. The language implies ongoing commitment. When someone had a need, people would respond to it. If they couldn't meet, it, meet the need out of their cash on hand, they would sell something to be able to do so. They understood that sharing in Jesus' life involves sharing your life with his followers. You give your time, your talents, your resources. You make investments in one another to build each other up. Or as Paul said in Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
but you can't bear the burdens of people you don't know. That's why Paul was always reminding Christians to greet one another. It wasn't just so that they could appear friendly, although that's nice. It's so you can enter each other's lives. It's so you can begin to feel each other's joys and struggles. We never taught that to people when they came forward at the Rogers Center. It wasn't time, frankly. But I can't help but think this kind of commitment to fellowship would have made a huge difference in the 94% of people who were unchanged after praying to receive Jesus. But instead, people looking for a personal Jesus left with exactly that. Most were looking for a private God to help them, but didn't want to get bogged down with relationships or fellowship or the church. If bear one another's burdens is the law of Christ, do you know what our law is? Not my, not my circus, not my monkeys. <laughs> Have you heard that? It's a Polish saying, but it's become popular in North America because it gives us an excuse not to care. I can focus on myself and ignore your problems because it's not my circus and they're not my monkeys. But if you're a follower of Jesus, we're all in the same circus. And so your monkeys are my monkeys. We're in this together. But if you don't take the time to greet people, you don't the people that you don't know, or if you make time for fellowship with other believers and actually share your life, then all you have is a personal Jesus. And then when the crisis hits, you haven't shared your life with anyone well enough to ask for help. Not my circus, not my monkeys only feels like a life slogan until it's your monkeys that are on the loose. Then you realize it's just selfishness. So we've said that devotion to Jesus involves devotion to his family. And sharing in Jesus' life involves sharing your life with his followers. But finally, I want you to see how following Jesus involves fellowship after the music fades. Fellowship is a marathon, not a sprint. You need to go in with your eyes open and take a long-term view. Following Jesus involves fellowship after the music fades. Now, if all I ever taught you about fellowship was those few verses in Acts chapter 2, you'd probably get the wrong impression. You'd think that fellowship was easy and the church was problem-free. That's probably not helpful. The reality is that the ideal of fellowship that was experienced after Pentecost didn't last forever. Eventually, people had to return to work. <laughs> Although they had acted for a while as if fellowship was all that there was, Eventually, they needed to learn to balance it with all of the other priorities and de demands of life. And there were problems. For instance, in Acts chapter 5, hypocrisy hit the church fellowship. A couple named Ananias and Sapphira sold a property and told everyone they were donating all the money to the church, when in fact, they were keeping back some for themselves. After you, you've experienced hypocrisy like that, makes it harder to trust people. Fellowship costs more. Then in Acts, Acts 6, complaints began to arise because some of the widows were being overlooked. They were confronted by the fact that people don't feel cared for when everyone doesn't do their part. After you've been let down like that, it makes it harder to care for others. 
fellowship costs more. Then in Acts chapter 7, you have the church's first martyr. With Stephen stoning, the pressure was dialed up on everyone. And when you feel threatened, it's easy to just think about your own safety. We've seen that during the pandemic. After you felt that kind of fear for yourself, it makes it harder to think about other people. Fellowship costs more. Then in Acts chapter 8, an influential man named Simon tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from the apostles. In the end, the apostles set him straight. But it opens your eyes to the fact that imposters can infiltrate God's family. People can show up with corrupt motives and evil intentions. After you've seen that kind of person, makes it harder to trust the next one. Fellowship costs more. And that's the point. One of the most honest expressions of the reality of fellowship is in Acts chapter 9. Jesus has appeared to Saul in a beaming light. Saul is miraculously converted. But there's a disciple named Ananias who doesn't know that. Jesus comes to him in a vision and tells him to go and pray for Saul's healing. Listen to his response in verse 13. Lord, I've heard, many, heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. He realized how, how much he had done and it stirred up something inside him. And Jesus didn't try to correct Ananias. Saul had done plenty of evil. But Jesus told him he had to go pray for him anyway. Fellowship is about making family from former enemies. It's about bringing te together people from different generations, different cultures, people with different politics and different perspectives, all uniting together around Christ. Fellowship is about getting close to others, serving others, bearing with others, and being patient with others, and then forgiving others. Fellowship is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. And if fellowship isn't at the heart of your faith, then it may not be the Jesus of the Bible that you're following at all. You may have just put your trust in a personal Jesus. You may be believing in a Western idol of individualism with a Christian veneer to make you feel better. Devotion to Jesus involves devotion to his family. Sharing in Jesus' life involves sharing your life with his followers. Following Jesus involves fellowship after the music fades. The church is where we say, we're all in this circus and your monkeys are my monkeys. So how's your fellowship? Many of you need to start by walking across the room or picking up the phone and greeting someone you don't know. You can't have fellowship with someone you've never spoken to. You can't care about someone you don't know. Start making a priority of connecting. But we've seen in today's passage that fellowship is more than warm greetings. You need to set aside time for God's people. Fellowship starts in small groups. Our life groups and prayer groups are where we learn to follow Jesus in community. They're where we encourage one another and support one another. They're where we speak the truth in love. They're where we begin to see each other's needs. But we see each other's needs in order to respond to them. 
We may not be the solution to the problem, but we're all a part of the solution to the problem. We bear each other's burdens. And maybe you've done that, but you've seen the music fade the way the early church did. Maybe people have let you down. Maybe you've balked at the price of forgiveness. Maybe your own problems have kept you from hearing others. I would say that it's at that point that you begin to see what fellowship really is. It costs something of all of us, but without it, we wither. Without it, our faith shrivels. Without it, we're left with a sub-Christian version of true faith. So roll up your sleeves and work at it. And if you ask why, it's because that's what Jesus did for us. We turned our backs on him. We chose to ignore him and we invited in sin and sickness and death into our lives as a result. And he could have just said, not my circus, not my monkeys. But instead, he gave up everything and he came to us in love. He shared his life with us and then he gave his life for us. We love because he first loved us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it seems we've been hardwired in our culture to focus on ourselves, to become consumed with what's in our lives, our dreams, our priorities, our cares, our burdens. And so it's easy for us to think of you as our personal God to just help us solve those without getting involved in other people's lives. Thank you, Father, that you have taught us that at the heart of the, our faith is a commitment to love you and to love our neighbor as ourself. I thank you that in following you, you call us to love one another because it's only in loving one another that we come to experience the help that the family of God was intended to provide. Help us, Father, to examine our hearts. Help us to see where we fall short. Help us to see what we can do. And help us to be used as your hands and your feet expressing love in tangible ways to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in so doing, be built up and strengthened as you would purpose. We praise you, Father, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you to see what fellowship really is and why it's so important to invest in it. If it's stirred up questions or you'd like to know more about what's involved in a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.